I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Today we welcome Dovi Francis. Dovi is an international financier, entrepreneur, and venture capitalist based in Los Angeles. Over the course of his career, Dovi has invested hundreds of millions of dollars in some of Silicon Valley's most prominent and disruptive financial technology companies. He serves as a director on several boards and is a member of the prestigious Advisory Council of Lumi Bank. He holds a Guinness World Record for creating the largest life insurance policy ever. And he made this happen while he was under the age of 40. Dovi is one of the main shark investors on the Israeli version of Shark Tank. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Dovi Francis. So let's go all the way back to the very beginning. Where were you born? I was born in a small suburb of Tel Aviv named Cholon, which is today is the fourth largest city in Israel. My mom is Eastern European, so she's half Polish and half uh, from the Czech Republic, or what used to be kind of the Czech Republic back in the days. And my dad is, uh, is actually not from Eastern Europe. He's half Greek and half uh, Bulgarian. My grandparents on my mom's side are Holocaust survivors, and on my, my dad's side uh, came to Israel uh, before the Holocaust. So your parents were both children then of Holocaust survivors. Yes, they were. What was it like to be raised by them? Actually, you know, I, I also spent a lot of time with my grandparents. Uh, my grandfather is now deceased, he's, but, but my grandma is very much uh, still alive and vibrant. She's 92 years old, and she, she spent time in the camps. She was in Birkenau. He was in Auschwitz. They met in Israel, though. So, so while my grandfather was pretty quiet about the Holocaust, we never talked about it at home, my grandma uh, did talk about it at times and showed us photos and shared with us her experience. She was blonde with blue eyes, and when she was um, in camps, uh, Dr. Mengele used to come and, and you know, examine them on a, on, a, on a daily basis, right, in the morning. And she was young. She was, she was just about to turn 14. And I think, I don't remember the exact age, but I think that if you turn 15 and you look Aryan and you have parents that are, that are blended, so you're, you have Jewish blood in you, but you also have German blood in you, they sent you back in the days uh, to be a prostitute uh, and take care of German soldiers in the front. Right. So when Dr. Mengele examined her, he asked her consistently, does she have parents? Does she have any German blood in her family uh, roots? Right. And she consistently said no, because she didn't know that there is uh, anybody there who was uh, who was German. And that's how she avoided being sent to the front to take care of uh, German soldiers. So that was part of her story and her journey. My grandfather, because he was a tall man and uh, probably probably six six foot so probably six six one and pretty strong was sent was sent to hard labor there is a photo actually until this very day that we carry at home that was shot by one of their propaganda photographers where he's holding you know an axe or whatever 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 the tool was and he's surrounded by three german soldiers that aim guns at him and and my grandfather also was tortured by by the germans and in his skull he has he's had a few ruptures right so if you touch his skull and i still remember it till this very day there are a bunch of bumps there from all the guns that were, you know, that, that hit him. So I think it affected my mom tremendously, right? I'm second degree of separation right. from it, right? So if it affected us to an extent, but it definitely affected my, my mom and my uncle. My grandfather lost all of his, almost all of his brothers in the Holocaust. And we were named as kids after the names of his brothers and sisters, right? So my name Dov is after the name of his brother Dov, who uh, was murdered in the Holocaust. It's a nice tradition. 
I love the name Dove anyway, just because it's so... It sounds serious, right? Yeah, it's very serious. <laughs> very serious name. Serious name. You know, when, uh, when I was young, I was pretty ashamed of the name because, you know, we had only one TV channel in Israel. And every Tuesday when I was, you know, in kindergarten and middle school, every Tuesday they, there was this TV show about this dog named Dovey. <laughs> Do- oh, no. Dovey Doberman, okay? And who helps kids cross the road. <laughs> <laughs> I remember every Wednesday yeah. when, I, when I come to school, they were singing to That's me that so song. Funny. <laughs> it took me some time <laughs> to learn to love my name, but I definitely like it today. That's so funny. Thing. So are your, I mean, your father inherited a small auto garage from his father and he, he made it into a very successful business. Yeah, yeah. The story there is interesting. You know, look, when I was young, we lived in, uh, as I said, we lived in Cholon in, in, a, in a neighborhood that was not such a good neighborhood as well. We were three kids living in one bedroom before my last brother was born in, in a two-bedroom apartment in Cholon. In and my dad used to work as a customs agent in my, well, in his dad and my late grandfather from his side business. And when my grandfather, my dad's dad, passed away, he inherited millions of what was liras back then in debt. And he needed to do something about it, right? So he inherited a small garage, but he inherited it from my mom's dad, from my grandfather's uh, on my mom's side, who gave him and my uncle, his son, you know, 50% each in what was, you know, uh, a small garage in the worst part of town that had, you know, like free lifts. And as a kid, I used to work there uh, during the summers. And what I remember vividly back then when it was kind of quasi-legal is that outside of the garage, because it was such a terrible area, we had you know, prostitutes working. So at around 5 p.m., prostitutes came and they stood outside of the garage and they were, you know... Working. Yeah, <laughs> they were doing their thing. But my, my part of my... Uh, <laughs> My pride and joy was to make them Turkish coffee at five <laughs> at five thirty five thirty p.m. While you know after washing the floor and after washing uh, engine parts. Not in trade. Huh? no, 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 no. Just, I was just... I was like seven years old. No, so yeah, so that's the story of the garage. The garage turned uh, into a successful business over over a course of you know the overnight successful over a course of forty years, right? <laughs> so uh, it took time for my dad to build it into a bigger garage and then another bigger garage, and uh, before you know, uh, this business today has almost four hundred employees. Wow, oh my gosh! And yeah, we have about five service centers, six dealerships. It's a big, it's a big. So business. that experience of entrepreneurship, of like building a business, were you minded in that way? Like, did you have that orientation, or was yeah. that something absolutely i mean I, I when i was young i looked up to two people in my life actually there was my uncle who built a significant business in the americas so he was the uncle from you know the american uncle right mm. and my dad who really worked uh, exceptionally hard uh to build the business that he has today and to provide for his family mm-hmm. so uh i'm really grateful of you know of of their involvement in my life because it really I think saved me yeah yeah when you're in Israel everybody goes into the army in between high school and college and you went into the army and I think that it's required that you do two years but you did four four and a half eight well it's required that you'll do three years so my story with the army was interesting I graduated from high school without a diploma and uh, I spent the majority of my high school you know well typically when people say I didn't have a diploma you feel like do you think like they were involved in crime or any you know no I was not I was really I was doing only one thing I was volunteering for the Israeli uh, version of the Red Cross which is Magen David Adom you know as a paramedic well an EMT back then but I turned into a paramedic as well and I loved it so I, I, instead of going to school, I used to go uh, volunteer, jump on ambulances, you know, play the siren, and you know, <laughs> and uh, and at, at a very young age, I started when I was when I was fifteen because 
At 15, while at high school, you're required to choose to do something for the community. You can you can choose. There are ver- various things you can do. I chose, um, again, David Adom, and you go for the training, and then you uh, start serving on ambulances. And I was addicted to it. I just had to ke- keep on doing it. And through that experience, I've seen some interesting things, right? So resuscitating people successfully or unsuccessfully to delivering an Ethiopian baby uh, in the northern part of Israel of uh, a Falashmurian lady. Uh, you know, we had the, the 13th Jewish tribe, which came from... Ethiopia. So a Falashmurian lady who was in her in her teens. So we delivered her in the northern part of Israel uh, to the Dizengoff Center bombing. So really from 15 to 18, you know, I, I had an amazing experience, but it precluded me. <laughs> that addiction precluded me from doing my mathematics, my <laughs> mathematics and my... <laughs> there were two things that, that I missed. It was uh, my, my math exam uh, and my sports exam, <laughs> which is funny because I'm pretty good at both of those things. <laughs> but so, yeah, so, you I know, yeah, so, I would gradu- say. Yeah, so I graduated you know, and I went to the army. And I don't know if you ever read, uh, have you read Paul Oster's uh, The Music of Chance book? Yes, amazing. Fab- fabulous, fabulous, Great book. right. A piece of art I highly recommend Paul it. Paul Oster's and The Music of Chance. Yeah, so my life is kind of like The Music of Chance because I'm the unintended recipient of tremendous luck and opportunity, really. You know, so, so wow. you, you would think that somebody that graduates without a diploma and goes to the army, you, you know, what will happen next is kind of like an enigma. And my parents never thought that I would be a good student or that I would excel in business, actually. Uh, I had an older brother who was always, you know, he was a rock star, right? So everything, a straight-A <laughs> student, you know, uh, a great athlete. He got a diploma. He got he got various <laughs> diplomas. So he went, he went to Officers Academy and he became an intelligence officer and a hacker and, you know, then went to UCLA and then went to Deutsche Bank, okay? He's two and a half years older than me. And I think that jealousy drove me to be better than what I could have been potentially. So, you know, so when I graduated from high school without a diploma and I went to the army, there were two ways to go at it, right? So there was one way of just doing a traditional army service and there was another way to figure out a way to excel. And as I was starting my army service, my brother got into officer's academy. And I remember, you know, it was the pride and joy of the family. Nobody was an officer before. And I remember him coming back home, you know, with the, it's not stripes yet, you know, it's the, the cadets, the cadets ranks. And I was like, no, this is cool. You know, I, I got to figure out a way to do it <laughs> myself. So it is cool. <laughs> so as I'm, you know, as I'm stepping into, you know, as I'm starting the army service, you know, they rank your um, intellectual capability before. So they give you a ranking. It's, uh, I think it's 40 to 56. And above 52, you can go to officer's academy. Sorry, assuming your commanders recommend you and assuming you have, you have a role that you have to fulfill. So I, I worked really hard <laughs> to be recommended to become, uh, to go into officer's um, academy. And so I did a year and a half into the army. I went to officer's academy, got back to the battalion and then decided I want to be an instructor in Officers Academy. So I want to train people to become officers. Uh, now and you were I, like 21 years old. Right? I was 21. And I went back to Officers Academy, which is in the desert part of Israel. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's Mitzpah Ramon. It's, it's lots of camels, a few roads, and uh, it's still, <laughs> still like this until this very day. And I went back to Officers Academy to instruct people, and I've done that for two years. Uh, and then I left the army. But when I left the army, I was already a company commander. I had, you know, 60 soldiers under that were training under my supervision. I had three officers. I had a driver, and I was 21. Wow. And that's leadership. I mean, like leadership, you couldn't ask for a better education and leading human beings than yeah and, and and affecting them and 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 really there was not a similar experience since i left the army because think about it they're with you 24 7 you take care of everything if somebody is not fed properly if somebody is sick if somebody went home and didn't come back if somebody had a mental breakdown so everything goes goes for you and of course and of course when somebody's touching weapons uh, you have to make sure that things happen uh, in an appropriate fashion as well is it true that when you go into the army and you go through your entry exams to get in that they have you do a handwriting test? Yes, they do. 
And also, they, they, there are a few tests, actually, and one of them is also to see if you're lying. So think about 400 questions that have redundancies, and they want to see, you know, in your core, do, do, do you speak the truth about things, right? So they ask you 400 questions, and the redundancy finds discrepancies. Yeah, so you do that. Um, That's so interesting. There is a handwriting test, which, honestly, I don't know what, what they would think of my handwriting. It was terrible back then. It's fascinating how many different, like, modalities of understanding the human being they use in order to figure out where to place them inside of the Think how difficult it is. Yeah. What, a, what a difficult task it is to place hundreds, and thousands, hundreds of thousands of teenagers every year into certain units in the Army and to make sure that you, you know, somehow do it in an appropriate fashion. So, you know, from, from putting people into uh, infantry to Air Force, Armory, um, support and intelligence units, Medical forces. So, yeah, you need to you need to figure out an efficient way and efficient methodology to do it. And, and I think they, they, they have it figured out. Do you think that your time doing the EMT work kind of leapfrogged you into being cool with people group that you were taking care of? Did it help you? It's a very good question. I'm uh, a little bit of an odd duck. I can communicate very well when it's around the mission. So when it's around something that I understand where I feel comfortable with it, with a topic, mm-hmm. whether it's being an EMT or you know, uh, guiding people through their, you know, uh, officers academy or uh, investing into technology companies, right? When when I'm comfortable with the topic, you know, I can talk for hours about the topic. But um, if it's just a general conversation or a chit chat, I can fail miserably. So, you know, yesterday we hosted at our house, we hosted 30 people. Uh, We had um, uh, one of uh, my wife's friends is a a renowned artist uh, that featured the first, he printed the first laughter in space with NASA. Zero gravity, 3D printing machine. Uh, The guy's brilliant. You should meet him. He's cool. You know, so lots of of his and her friends came and, you know, I was required (laughs) to To chat. chat. And (laughs) and I just, you know, I stand there and after four hours, I'm exhausted. And what else is there to talk about yeah so anyway sorry i give you a roundabout answer but i love the answer because i think that so many times when we have a strength and then we have this other side people don't understand that other side and i think very frequently people don't understand the fatigue that sets in for a person who is not chatty you know Uh, absolutely and anxiety yeah, because you're just like, you're trying the whole time trying to think, okay, what do I say next? What do I do next? Versus on the mission, it's very clear what you do next. It's very clear what you say next. Yeah. So I really appreciate you sharing it. I think it's important for people to understand that kind of You'll duality. You'll see it a lot with business people, I mm-hmm. think, because by, by the time the day's over, you're just mentally exhausted. I mean, <laughs> you, especially entrepreneurs, right? You're just, this, and then coming home and hosting 30 people the, and talking with them about whatever while I'm thinking about my business. I'm, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm 100% similarly to my dad. I do have the sensitivity of my mom, but similarly to, to my dad, I'm a workaholic. Mm-hmm. So my, my mind is just constantly, you know, and, and, and of course, I, I can tell you that even in the relationship with my wife, sometimes she talks to me about something and I look at her and I'm like, what is this about? The curtains? And <laughs> but, but she must know that about you. And knows that that's who you are. How long have you been married? We've been together for six years. So we've been married legally in the States for six years. Uh, we've mar- been married by Reform Rabbi for two years. And we've been married by Jewish religion for a year. So we married three times. Wow. <laughs> Well, three I think times you're both charm, committed. Yeah. Huh? No, she wanted to make sure that it's a done deal. Yeah, so there are no mistakes. It's so funny. So, so there are two things actually that, that I've seen throughout my career that, that I find super interesting. And I don't know, nobody ever researched it, I guess. But one of them is how well you do in school versus versus how well you do in business. And, and the second thing is, were you born to a wealthy family or not? 
And because, uh, and again, I don't want to generalize in, in, in both of those things because you can see some exceptional people that were born to wealthy families and you see some ex- exceptional people that went to great uh, schools and performed exceptionally well. But I found that the combination of the two at times uh, leads to people that have sense of entitlement, people that believe that they're best in class and don't have the humility and the work ethic to be successful. You saw values in action that you embraced, and they helped you to be as smart as you are. You also have compassion. You know, you made coffee for the working girls at yeah. 530. I mean, to me, the <laughs> With values... With no benefit. Hopefully it was good coffee. Right. So, but I mean, the, ben- the, benefit, yeah. the benefit of values is you can translate them into any situation and make yeah. them work for you. So yeah. I think it's important to know what it is not to have. And, and to know what it is to have mm-hmm. and well, and I think you can operate efficiently when you have the when you have the full range yeah luckily as a kid I had the full range right so very young we had nothing and later on we had a lot yes okay so now you're out of the army I'm out of the army had great experience you're now all of what 23 at this point no, no 20 uh, I think almost 22 and now it's time to uh, get a degree but prior to that what you do after four and a half years in the army you go and travel abroad I mean that's an Israeli <laughs> thing right so many Israelis you'll you see do a after. gap year <laughs> yeah you do you take a year take a year off so I took a year off and I went to South America you know I became what we call a mochilero so you know a backpacker <laughs> a mochilero <laughs> like mochila is like the backpack that you carry I think that's how they say it in Spanish and uh, I traveled from Brazil when the carnival started, you know, in uh, in Rio, uh, in Salvador de Bahia, and then I went to the jungles, the Pantanal, like I traveled in the jungles, and then from there, Foz de Iguazu, Argentina for a couple of days, back to Peru and Bolivia. Wow. So that was my, uh, that was my trip. Were you alone? Yeah, I was alone. Uh, and I met people along the way, yeah. and you know, you but travel you with people and you separate yourself. again, and, and so on and so forth. And Do that, you have Portuguese and Spanish? Did you pick it up? And No, I, but I picked up Spanish a bit because mm-hmm. I ended up working in, uh, in Cusco, in Peru, you know, down the Machu Picchu. I ended up working there for two months as a bartender because I ran out of money. <laughs> So you make a good pisco sour, I bet. Yeah, yeah that was a good. I was a good bartender. Back then, the, the, there was the elections. There were the elections in Peru, and Toledo, Toledo, who was the president of Peru back then, was married to an Israeli woman, was running for election, and you saw like lots of riots in the streets from both opposing parties. So I did that for a year, and then I came home uh, back to Israel to study. And of course, when you, when you study, you have to take the SATs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mind you, I'm already like 22 and change, right? I'm almost 23. Oh, you're so old. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, but but you know, here in the states, when people you, are done at 22, what do you mean they're done? You're they're already working the, on Wall yeah, Street. Yeah, yeah. So what's what's unique about Israel is, I think, is that you know, and I remember it clearly when I came to business school here. Uh, I went to UCLA Anderson, and I joined. You know, I came started in 06 and graduated in June of 08. But I remember my first experience sitting in class that is comprised 70% of American students. And they're already like years in Wall Street and Bain, Bain, BCG, and whatever was the dream back then, right? Today, the dream is to be an entrepreneur and (laughs) to make a lot of money in cryptocurrencies. Anyways, so, 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 yeah, so I had, you know, I had to take the SATs. um, And studying for the SATs, I discovered something really interesting. I discovered for the first time in my life that I'm really great with numbers. Really great. They were just... It, everything appears in front of me. And, and, and it was really funny because as a kid, I remember my dad trying to teach me the multiplication chart and failing miserably and failing in, in almost every math uh, class that I've taken. So all of a sudden to perform well with numbers and to feel comfortable with them and to get the maximum, the maximum the SAT score uh, under that section was just refreshing. And, and that allowed me to get to in, into any school that I wanted in Israel because I got the maximum that, that I could within the SATs. Wow. And of course, I got, I got to complete my diploma as well. 
<laughs> 23. So now I could get into any school that I wanted. And I got into uh, the, the interdisciplinary college, uh, which is this private university in, uh, uh, in Ercilia. And, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I didn't know what I want to become. So I thought that becoming an attorney is a good idea. Big mistake. <laughs> so as I'm studying, I'm studying in the first year. So let's say I'm 20, 23 and change, and I'm depressed. And I go to class, and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is just the worst thing ever. First, I know no, nothing bad about the interdisciplinary college, which is a good college, but I, I, it wasn't the college experience that I'd imagined. I didn't want to be at home every day. You know, I wanted to be with people that, you know, we can, we can go to parties together, and we can we can share like the, the, the college life, or here they call it the Greek life, right? We don't have this in Israel. So a quarter into it, I collapsed. And Physically? Mentally. And I'm, I'm saying I didn't collapse because I was consuming anything. I just collapsed because I collapsed. I don't have any explanation to what happened to me. I just couldn't do it. And I left school. And <laughs> it's kind of interesting because you never talk about those things, right? So I, I think it's important to mention it because I we're agree. putting stuff on the table that we're all fragile at times. And the strongest you are, the more fragile you are at times. And my mom... Uh, was luckily not listening to this podcast, but my mom had severe depression when I was young for many, many years to the point where she, you know, for years she couldn't get out of bed and then she was treated with the right pills and she recovered and today she's fully functioning. But this sensitivity comes with a price. And uh, I got, luckily, just a fraction of her sensitivity. But the, the stars didn't align. And, you know, I got depressed. And I think getting depressed was the best gift I've ever gotten. You know, in hindsight, right? You know, years and years after this thing was done and after this acute episode that lasted for six months, being depressed for six months was probably the best gift that I've ever gotten because it enabled me to look at the universe completely different. I knew how it feels to die inside. And that feeling... Amplify wow. the feeling of how good it feels to do well, to be in love, to create, yeah. right? So many, many things. And uh, the recovery from the depression was really quick, actually. You know, they made me take pills for like three months. I took the pills for three months. And, you know, and then I one day I woke up and said, fuck, fuck those pills. I don't want to deal with it. I stopped taking pills. And I just focused on what make, made me better, which was yoga and meditation and, you know, all those things. And the, the other thing that I think saved me was that at the beginning of the episode of depression, and because my mom probably experienced it before, my dad came to me and he said, okay, fine. So you left school and you were depressed and it's all good, but you have to work. And he sent me to work. So I worked in the car dealership selling cars for six months while I was, you know, <laughs> I was depressed. And, you know, you have to engage with people. People come, yeah, they want to buy cars, you need to sell cars. Car, I mean, yeah. the, the, the mission is the mission. And, you know, it doesn't matter how you feel. You know, you guys work every day. It doesn't matter how you feel. You have to execute the goals that you set to execute. And being that it was a family business and I'm his son, oh, I better execute, right? People are looking at me as well. So working saved me. And while working, I also discovered that I can be a pretty good salesperson, but that's a separate, that's a separate <laughs> topic. You know, so while working at the dealership, I thought to myself, I'm sitting at the dealership, you know, I'm, I'm you know, 23 and a half, you know, I've, I failed to, uh, I failed to get a degree and I'm like, I know I want to get a degree and I want, I, I want, I want it as soon as possible. And, and eventually what I did, I went to Ben Gurion University, which is a great university in the southern part of Israel. Uh, and I completed my degree. I have a dual degree in, uh, in business and psychology, but slightly prior to that, I, you know, while I'm sitting at the dealership, you know, I look around and I was like, okay, so we're sitting here waiting for people to come into the dealership. I said, well, that's a stupid idea. Why won't we get a dealership to them? And I came up with the idea of selling cars in shopping malls. And for months and months, that's what we did. We just kept on selling cars in shopping malls. I created this mobile uh, dealership uh, with all the shenanigans associated with it mm -hmm. and the right advertising, etc. And we sold bulks and bulks and bulks of, of cars. So that's, that's that. But anyways, uh, I graduated and... Uh, 
At, at the same time, my older brother was already at UCLA, so he was already studying. This is your older brother? Yeah, my older brother. You remember I told you he yeah, went to he Offices was, Academy and then yeah. UCLA and then Deutsche Bank. So he was already about to graduate from UCLA, I believe. Uh, it was 2005. He actually, he graduated in 05, yeah. So he just got a job with Deutsche Bank. And I remember when he told us that he got a job in investment banking. By the way, he's still there. <laughs> <laughs> so he's the head of... Uh, he's the head of uh, 13 years later, he's... Yeah, still, he's the head of uh, um, uh, technology investment banking in Europe. So he covers Europe, Middle big, East, and, and Africa. Yeah, big job. Took Yandex Public and many other good companies. So anyways, when he got the first... Signing uh, bonus, which was thirty, uh, it was forty, almost forty thousand dollars. I remember the number. I was like, "Oh my goodness, big number!" Well, what am I doing? What am I doing here? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I decided to do it as well. So I went to my dad. I told him, "He said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pursue uh, an MBA." He said, "Dovi, you barely graduated out of college, you know." So, <laughs> you know, Ishai has his own capabilities, yeah. and you have your own capabilities, and it's fine. Stay, stay with me, and work at the family business. And the, the last thing I wanted is to work at the family business because, regardless of how good you are, when you work for um, a business that your dad has built, you are entitled, you are privileged, and you will be looked upon as such. Right. But, uh, it doesn't matter how well you do, what mm-hmm. creative ideas you come with. And I just didn't want, I didn't want to be that person. I wanted to create my own path. So I applied uh, to a few schools. I took the gym at, I've done okay. And I got accepted to Darden, <laughs> to UNC Chapel Hill, and to UCLA, Georgetown, and Babson. <laughs> so, of course, easy choice. UCLA was, yeah. uh, was an easy choice. And I got to UCLA. And, uh, you know, it's a two-year uh, degree. And I remember coming to class and UCLA being a second-tier business school. Right, because first-year business schools like like uh, Stanford don't have the curve system. You know the curve system? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. for grading. Yeah, for grading. Yeah. UCLA does. So I look, you know, I remember going into class, looking around me. So the Indian people are, you know, sitting down, taking notes. <laughs> the Chinese people are not talking at all. Their English is terrible, but they're crushing it with numbers. Uh, the American, you know, the Americans already know what's going on, right? They've been trained for this. They've been groomed for this for so many years. They know exactly what to say, how to say, when to say, yeah. how to study for these exams. And I looked at the, the the Brazilian guy, the Argentinian guy, and, and me, and I'm like, okay, I see, I see, his, I see who is on the left side of the curve system, you know. So I was studying very hard in the first year, trying to figure out what to do. And, and meanwhile, of course, you know, recruiting takes place every evening. Recruiters come to UCLA Anderson, and they meet students that are interested in their own, you know, whatever whatever the domain is. It can be marketing, it can be banking, it can be consulting. And trust me, I had no clue about any of those things. Oh, I don't know what is investment banking. I was, you know, I'm, I came from Israel, you know, at the You're age 24 of... 24 years yeah, old. Yeah. I didn't know. And I, and I think many foreign students... Yeah, many international students didn't know as well. But everybody pretends like they know. The culture at UCLA back then, I don't know what it is today, and I think the culture across many business schools is to nod, to eat your cheese and crackers in recruiting events, right. to drink your cheap wine, to surround the executive who talks with you about whatever it is that they do, pretend to be exceptionally interested and try to get the job interview. Well, after a couple of events, I, I just couldn't do it. <laughs> I cannot talk about whatever. And, 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 and quite honestly, I was, I was pretty occupied <laughs> with, with trying to graduate, right? So... So I thought to myself, there must be a better way to recruit while really focusing on studying because I, I had to study. And, and I figured out a methodology that might work for me. So, so for the, first, the first phase was to fail miserably in recruiting, which I did uh, because I thought I'm going to do marketing because I'm a good marketer. I had no clue what is private banking or, yeah, you know, so I recruited, for, I recruited for marketing positions. And I remember that this lady comes to, to interview us uh, and I got the interview. I was very excited that finally somebody is speaking with me and I'm sitting in front of her and she used to work for General Mills and she hands me her business card and I read it and I just can't understand. The title is VP of Frozen. How can you be VP? <laughs> I mean, I was like, and the woman was pretty cold, I'll tell you. Uh, 
an ex-marine, you know, short hair, <laughs> not overly excited by Aptly my name, not overly excited <laughs> by my appearances, <laughs> you know. So we sit, we sit there and she, she asked me, you know, in the interview, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And I take a deep breath. And, you know, back then, you know, what, 13 years ago, my vocabulary was worse than it is today. And, you know, I'm trying to think about the right answer and I'm stressed out. And I'm like, in your position, just answer candidly in your position. And then I stop myself and I, I'm like, hold on, maybe took, I asked her, how long did it take you to get to your position? She said, uh, 13 years. So I said, okay, so in your position, and, and I'm sure that by then you'll get a promotion. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the interview ended. Oh, my God. The interview ended. Awkward. And, and awkward. <laughs> very awkward. And she's like, she's looking, she's looking so at their funny. clock. She's looking at their clock and she's like, well, and you're not a good our time is up. <laughs> I didn't know what to say. What do I know about Minneapolis and, you know, the wow. weather there and, and what have you? Anyways, so now I'm like, I have to figure out a way to get a job. And, you know, the second year started. I worked in a small startup during the summer between year one and year two. And the clock is ticking and my student loans are, you know, are growing, right? I took a loan from Sally May that the, upon graduation was $120,000. In Israel, oh it will take you a lifetime to return it. So, and then my older brother tells me, you know, Dovi, why won't you just go try to become a private banker? I said, I haven't, what is a private banker? So I said, do some reading in the library about what is a private <laughs> banker. And then try to meet a few private bankers uh, and, you know, see if you can get a job in private banking. And mind you, it's 07, okay? So it's, it's yeah. a year before the crush. So I'm reading and I'm like, okay, it makes sense. So some salesmanship, good appearances. Right. <laughs> and, 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 some, and some wisdom and uh, seems about right. But how do I convince a private bank that I have a book of business where I barely speak Where'd the language? <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, luckily I was the president of the Jewish club uh, at UCLA, which is, by the way, the way I met Rabbi Sorani, whom you mentioned earlier. So I knew lots of uh, wealthy uh, Jewish people because I used to bring them over to speak with our students. So I crafted this narrative. I crafted a story. And the next phase was, okay, how do we reach people at scale? Because number, it's all a numbers game anyways, right? So how do you reach as many people that are working in private banking, that have graduated out of UCLA Anderson, or alumni, they have this, this feeling of uh, familiarity, and, and try to sell them on this and I reached out I had an Excel spreadsheet created I reached out to 100 alumni the same the same email just changing the right the right <laughs> words at the right time and everything and a few focused, of them geez. a few of them responded and one of the ladies who have responded I won't mention her name was working with Deutsche Bank another person who responded who's now the head of uh, Asia for JP Morgan Andy Andy Cohen and the third one who responded was David who works for Burr Stearns uh, used to work for Burr Stearns which is now JP Morgan as well right so the three of them responded I had interviewed with all interviews with all of them and and things clicked. Yeah. I don't know how to explain it. You know, when, when you pursue the right thing that fits you, you will say the right things as well. So I got two job offers, one from Burr Stearns and one from Deutsche Bank. And luckily, I chose uh, Deutsche Bank. So in June of 08, I joined, I joined Deutsche. I stayed there for two and a half years through the financial crisis as well. Can, can we back up to yeah, that? Sure. I, I find an interesting parallel. You started your career in the financial world in 87 after yeah. a crash. And you f- you started your career. No, at the we both d- started right before the, the crash. The, right before June, right September. Before, there was nothing yeah, left right before the crash. Right, right at the yeah. moment. I before. literally started one week before the October nineteenth, nineteen eighty seven crash. And my greatest story was I had no clients, so nobody was mad at me. (laughs) But I used that opportunity to get get clients. clients. You know, so um, my situation was similar, right? I was uh, training in New York in September, where everything went down. And then um, I was really afraid to lose my job. I just got it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but my green card was with Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank was my sponsor to stay in the States. I had to keep my green card with the, with the, the bank. So I worked very hard to make sure that they don't fire me. So, you know, in private banking, 
you can sell both sides of the balance sheet. So you can sell assets. You know, it could be traditional equities, fixed income securities, derivatives, uh, private equity, etc. And you can sell, of course, uh, on the lending side, you can sell liabilities. So you can sell residential mortgages, commercial mortgages, etc. Um, Deutsch relying on a balance sheet that is European and, you know, the ripple effect didn't hit Europe until a year and a half later, mm-hmm. extended credit massively in the States uh, through jumbo mortgages in 2008 and 2009. And that that was an amazing window of opportunity for me. Yep, I remember it well. You remember that? Because all, all American banks were shut for doing we business. We were shut down. We couldn't do anything. And Deutsche no. Bank was just coming in and cleaning up. Yeah. So we basically, the way I built my book of business was simple. Extend loans and take over AOMs, uh, assets under management. Mm-hmm. But then I you know, I, I said, okay, but we need to do it at scale. I'm not going to go to Jewish charity events and kiss Jewish widows on their cheeks and try to take their mortgages. It's not working like this. So You don't like to chat anyway. I don't so. like to chat anyway. So I'm like, how do I do it in an efficient fashion? But, but before that, I'll take a step back. You know, a year into working with Deutsche Bank, my volume was significant. My mortgage volume was significant. And I met the fellow who works in the other side of the wall at Deutsche Bank, Alex Brown, a broker. And we talked and I said, how much, how much money are you guys making? He said, well, we're making commissions only. There is no salary, but for every million dollars mortgage that you sell, you'll, I think you'll net like $5,000 or something like that. I was like, oh my goodness, I'll make like half a million dollars if I move now. Pay off <laughs> so, your note to the, so, to the school. Yeah. So I followed the money, right? So it's the same job, just that you eat what you kill. I was like, okay, I'm okay with eating what I'm, you know, what I kill. Uh, so I took the risk and I moved uh, from the private bank to uh, to the brokerage, and the transition was crazy. While it's one wall away, one wall separates between the offices. In one, I had like a, a nice, a nice, a nice office and an assistant, and in the other one, I have a desk and a computer that doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and no salary and no base, nothing. Right? They give you a base for like a month or two, and then it's done. Yep. I started my career at Alex Brown. I was there before Alex Brown got We're sold acquired, to Bankers yeah. Trust b- before it got sold to Deutsche Bank. And it was just Alex Brown. Yeah. yeah. I calculated that I can make more money uh, at Alex Brown and I moved. No hard feelings, right? I just moved to, to where I can, you know, pay my loans faster. And, and then something interesting happened. The government, the American government, extended the, the TAR program. You remember that? The yeah. Temporary yeah. Asset yeah. Relief Program? All of the banks got back into lending immediately, right? So all of a sudden, our you know, unfair competitive advantage right. that lasted for almost a year uh, was out of the door. <clears throat> and now I'm without a salary. My pipeline diminishes rapidly, right? <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh my God, what, what, what a mistake. <laughs> what have I done? And, um, and quickly, too. It was like whipsawing around. It was around. really quick. It was, it was really a terrible quick. terrible time. Um, I remember calling my older brother, Ishai, and, you know, I was like, Ishai, I need a loan. I was living in uh, on Wilshire Corridor in the, the, the well, what, what is a nice neighborhood, right? But in a small, you know, five-story uh, five building, the rent was $1,600 a month. The car was $300. Whatever other expenses, let's say another $1,000 and paying the loan, $1,000, I was like, I need like... I need like, I think I asked for five or 10,000 bucks. So enough to just carry me for the next couple of months as I replenish my pipeline. But the drastic measure had to be taken to survive. <laughs> and meanwhile, you know, my dad and my mom is like, okay, so come back home. You know, right. yeah, you, have, you have a degree. <laughs> come, you know, you'll work in the you're family fine. <laughs> you can work for the family business. And, you know, but, fail, you know, failure was not an option. I hate failing. And I decided to come up with a creative idea. And my creative idea went as follows. I will take a list from a title company of people who reside in properties where the value is above $5 million. I'll take all of their addresses. I'll, you know, you know, you have everything, right? Back then it was legal to take it as well. I took a list from a title rep that has 2,000 names of people who reside in certain parameters that I've outlined. They reside in properties where the value of the property is $5 million. The mortgage is above $3 million. Uh, the zip codes are 902, 902, 902, and so on yeah, and so yeah, forth, yeah. right? And then I sent 2,000 letters. 
you know, the way I crafted the letters is, you know, I hand signed each of them. I wrote the name of, on the envelope myself, right? And, uh, and the names were printed, you know, in a certain way based on the Excel spreadsheet that I created. And I sent them out. And I remember the brokers were laughing at me because nobody's done that. Why will you stay after working hours to send like thousands of letters? I mean, that's, that's almost stupid. Because failure was not an option. Yeah, well, and, but they didn't know that, right? So the responses started coming. So what was the pitch in the letter? I talked about our mortgage product, essentially. So we have five one-arm, free one-arm, whatever it is, right? So uh, adjustable rate mortgage, for those of you who are not familiar with the term. So people started responding. And I have had a few meetings and some, some really interesting meetings. And some people we couldn't qualify and some people we could qualify. But really the, the turning point, which, which I think was my pivotal point, uh, was when I got an email at 2 a.m. one morning from a fellow named Sergey Grishin. So Sergey Grishin? Grishin, G-R-I-S-H-I-N. Sergey Grishin. And, you know, at 2 a.m., we had Blackberries back then. It was vibrating. And, you know, I, I look at it and you have this Pavlovian response when the Blackberry vibrates even at 2 a.m., right? So, <laughs> so I look and, and, and so somebody true. writes in broken English, you know, my name is Sergey. I just bought this house for $27 million in cash, free exclamation marks. <laughs> <laughs> And I bought this plane, like $12.5 million in cash. <laughs> and I, I got your letter. I would like to meet. And I read, I read, the, letter, I read the email and I'm like, yes. <laughs> Probably somebody at the office is laughing at me. Like, this is a joke of my fellow brokers, right? Like, you thought you were being punned. You said you were being punned? Yeah, of course. I mean, it didn't, didn't strike me as something normal to write. And... Then I Googled the name and I go first page, nothing. Second page of Google, nothing. Third page, Russian billionaire buys uh, Montecito Estate Valverde. <laughs> I was like, okay. And the name appears there, right? And I was like, okay, so he's real. And I respond back, you know, Sergey, I would love to meet you. And you, we, we keep going, you know, 2.30, 3.30, 3.30, 30, schedule a meeting for 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. I don't remember in Montecito. I've never been to Montecito. I don't have a clue how to get to Montecito. <laughs> You know? And you haven't slept. <laughs> and I haven't slept well, but that's fine. I was energized. And I drive to Montecito, you know, and I'm driving with my Mitsubishi Eclipse. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know? Convertible. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Because man. I'm tall. I'm <laughs> driving so there funny. and I get to Montecito. So, you know, I go and, and I don't think the GPS was working in Montecito properly. So I'm asking people how to get to Rockridge uh, Estate. And, you know, I get to Rockridge Estate. The big gates open up. You know, you go through the ridge, the, the, the waterfall, you know, is like <laughs> inside of the perimeter. And I park there in this big uh, parking lot that has a bunch of Bentleys and other luxury cars. And <laughs> when, all, when I see all of this, you know, I'm not like, oh my goodness, here is a big fish I'm going to fry. Right. I didn't think like this at all. I was just fascinated, really, with his story and, and him and How this, old this weird situation. Well, now, I think now he's 56. So he was a relatively young guy. Yeah. yeah made yeah. a bunch of money. Yeah. Wanted to borrow against the assets that he'd accumulated that he paid cash for. And there you are. And with before, your car. <laughs> before I came with my car, he was declined by every bank on Wall Street. Because he's Russian, because mm -hmm. it's 09, because right. he has one year of uh, tax returns, because, you know, the money, the, the income came from offshore entities. But you and had so the advantage on. of working at Deutsch. And also had the advantage of knowing how to craft a story. Mm. Right? I've, I was always very good in, you know, putting together the right story around whatever it is that I wanted to sell. So I understood him. You know, it took me some time and we can, you know, without divulging too much information about his private mm -hmm. affairs, right? Because, you know, I want to be respectful of him and his family. But I understood him and I understood his situation. And I think he understood me and he understood my situation. And that started this very interesting friendship, which is not just, you know, you know Rebecca, you're in private banking, so you have people who trust you with their lives and secrets yeah. and families, you know, and family affairs and 
extramarital affairs and what have you. The, the art of, of wealth management is it's also to know how to manage the interpersonal relationships with family members and with the principal. And, and with him, I really understood him. As, as genius as he was and as complicated as he was, I understood him. And he wanted to be understood. Right. He, he, he needed that as well. He didn't only need the loans or the asset management services that we rendered later. He needed a friend as well. That friendship developed while transacting. And after meeting him, he gave me a chance. He said, okay, so this is what I think that, that I would like. And, you know, this loan and this loan. And, you know, in exchange, I'm willing to move assets. And, you know, this is how we, you know, this is how I, this is what I think about this. But the story was not clear yet, right? And then he calls me a day later and he says, hey, look, uh, this weekend, I'm going to my ranch in Spokane, in Washington State. Would you like to come? <laughs> and I'm like, what is going on here? <laughs> I met his wife, I met the kid, but this is very odd behavior. And I'm like, call my, my brother again. It's interesting. You have mentors in life through certain periods of, yeah. you know, for, but mentors don't stay with you forever. Mm -hmm. Mentors stay with you for the time that they can add value. And, right. you know, and becoming a mentor of your mentor also happens at times, which I think that's what I am today for my brother. But anyways, back then he, I called him and I said, so what do we do? And he says, you fly there. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so I said, okay, Sergey, I'll, you know, I'll fly. Just tell me, you know, where do I need to fly exactly? And he says, no, no, you don't need to do anything. I'll send my pilots. So the, pi the, the plane comes. I'm alone in the plane. They fly me to, uh, you know, it was a Challenger 604, you know, they take me to. But you're uh, now trying to put a loan on. You know, yes, and uh, successfully. <laughs> so anyways, I, I uh, fly and I spend the weekend with him in the ranch and just talk about life. And I share my life story and he shares his, which was super interesting and unique. And I go to work, right? And I managed to get him approved for two large loans with Deutsche Bank. And he moves over tens of millions of dollars that I managed for him at the bank. Now, and all of a sudden, you paid off your loans. You got money coming in. And yeah. Yeah. You, you know, I didn't feel like a king of the world. I just like, okay, you know, we need to execute what we need to execute. And I didn't understand that the opportunity is far greater than just taking care of his banking needs as the relationship develops and as I become privy to more and more information I understand the, this complex financial and personal picture and I can see I can see the opportunity for me as well and uh, one time when we're in New York five months into working together we have dinner and he asked me what do you think about coming uh, to work for me and running my family office and uh, I said I, I think it's a great idea <laughs> 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 Are you, you going to pay me more than I'm getting paid at Deutsche? <laughs> well, here's an interesting thing. He says, how much would you like to be paid? And I looked at him and I said, I don't think it matters at all. Whatever you would like to pay me, I'll take. Because I wasn't counting pennies. Mm -hmm. I saw the opportunity. Right. Uh, I, 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 smell, I smell the opportunity. And it was not just, let's make bulk load of money. It was the, the challenge of building it from the ground up with mm -hmm. wealth that is fairly new. Right. Mm -hmm. So I jumped cheap. I left Deutsche Bank uh, in 2010. And uh, I... You know, I started working with Sergey to build his family office from the ground up. And, you know, uh, I did that for five years. And, you know, I'm trying, I'm walking a fine line here, right? Because family offices tend to be secretive about the personal affairs of the principal. They definitely The don't. dynamic between the parties. But I can tell you, uh, what I can tell you, we'll take it, we'll do top down and we'll, we'll look at it, you know, from above for a second. The challenge was very interesting because there were lots of illiquid assets that mm. he has accumulated since he sold his company in 2008. So, you know, there was a 164-foot Delta Marine boat that we built for $46 million and there was a Challenger 604 and there was a Bell 407 and there was a G5 and the Scarface house and the Rockbridge estate, a bunch and bunch and bunch of physical assets that were not leveraged all that were on a monthly basis were pretty costly. Uh, and then, of course, there was also the opportunity to invest capital in things that the principal liked and maybe in things that I liked as well, right? Right. So navigating this, this picture was very interesting, right? Because as you release money from illiquid assets, you can invest more money into alternative investments, which, which I really liked. 
and he was always fascinated with um, with real estate and I was always intrigued with technology so we didn't necessarily see eye to eye with our investment prerogative but I you know I deployed capital as he desired so I invested in multi-family properties and office buildings and single-family residences and I bought Citibank out of a shopping mall uh, business that they own in Russia and I you know I bought their position for him and we've done a bunch of big deals real estate deals but I, I was always looking towards Silicon Valley and uh, I was pretty fascinated with what's happening there and so in 2011 another miracle happened and and we talked about earlier about music of chance and and as you can see throughout my short career some things happen and I just noticed that they happen and I capitalize upon them it happened in my childhood and it happens to Till this very day you just get a hint from the universe and you act upon the hint so it's fairly simple right and you just work very hard to act upon the hint but there is a hint and in my view by the way just a side note but in my view everybody gets the same hints everybody gets opportunities mm-hmm. well almost everybody we can go back to the Palestinians later but almost everybody <laughs> gets an opportunity especially as yeah. you reside in areas that are fairly privileged I'm not talking about third third world countries or poverty infested areas I'm yeah. talking about areas that are okay you know I was living in in you <laughs> In Westwood, it's not, you know, it's not that yeah. bad. The opportunity came, you know, just notice, don't be greedy, you know, play the cards right, work very hard, and, you know, and, and you'll reap the benefits of that. I want to go back and acknowledge something, and that is this balance or this tension between weakness and greed and the sort of the deep kind of thoughtfulness that you bring to everything that you do. It's, it's, it's not just intelligence. It's actually really thinking about what's the right thing in this situation. Can you talk a little bit yeah. about that? Yeah. Well, I can talk a lot about greed and I can talk a lot about entitlement and I can talk a lot about uh, the feeling that I should have this as well. So let me explain. When I stepped into Sergei's home for the first time, never in my mind I thought I should have this as well. Or when I stepped into your home today, Rebecca, never in my mind I thought I should have this as well. I don't think like this about material stuff. I care more about the cognitive challenge and about winning than about the rewards that that come with that. And I think if you want to be wealthy, that's the right state of mind. Mm-hmm. You should be, I talk about, a lot about it because, you know, when I ran the family office, I had 15, about 15 employees and a couple of them that were working for me in, in analyst capabilities, et cetera, always wanted, you know, there were a few of them that always wanted more. And, and I try to explain that if you want to have more, you need to put more effort. into it so that means don't punch the clock nine to five right you come to work you know as early as you can you work weekends you know I've, I've been working for so many years weekends I'm at the office on the weekends because you cannot win if you don't put more time into it and if you don't put more time into it you cannot expect to get what other people have because nobody became wealthy mistakenly right most people right I mean with the caveat of a few people that put money into cryptocurrency people who win in a big way like Sergey like Rebecca like yourselves right like like some of the clients that Rebecca serves are people that add value to humanity whatever the business is it can be a liquor business it can be it can be a, a, a gymnastics business a gymnastics chain it can be a bank it can, whatever whatever the business is it adds a utility to It offers a service people people enjoy it and um, that's how I look at wealth uh, and that's how I look at becoming wealthy as well I'll simplify it and I simplified it for myself as well I think there is a pyramid and the pyramid is fairly clear if you strip all the suits and you strip all the jewelry of us and you strip everything and you look at the construction of society the pyramid works as follows at the bottom of the pyramid and and the risk reward in the pyramid is inverse low risk at the bottom of the pyramid higher super high risk at the top of the pyramid high potential high reward at the top of the pyramid very low reward at the bottom of the pyramid and at the bottom of the pyramid you have people who work in professions that don't require significant training 
It can be an assistant, it can be a barista, it can be a waiter, a waitress. They can be very, very good in what they do, but no training is required. And as such, the compensation is low, but the risk is also super low. And by the way, everything that I'm talking about is, is, is fair game, meaning that if you chose to do what you do and you love what you do and you do it well and you're okay with it, then it's fine. People need to fulfill certain roles in our society. Slightly above that, there are people who, cho- who work in professions that require training and specialization. Attorneys, accountants, bankers, mm-hmm. so on and so forth, right? Above that, you have private equity and venture capital. It can be above, it can be parallel. You know, mm-hmm. I put it in the pyramid to make it easier for me. I don't mean necessarily those people are better than the others. Uh, or that they make more money than the others because you can see, you no, can see both. No, it's a risk-reward. Yeah. But the interesting thing about private equity and venture capital is that you're a quasi-entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. So you don't take the risk of the entrepreneurs that you back because they put their time, heart, sweat, tears, blood into one particular venture that might succeed or fail based mm-hmm. on a few things. Mm-hmm. The total addressable market, the, the, the product market fit, their abilities, uh, the people who back them, their abilities to attract capital and so on and so forth. But as a venture capitalist and as a private equity, uh, and, and I put the two under the same, the same category, although private equity guys tend to make more money than venture capitalists. <laughs> So, but as a venture yes, capitalist, right, right? As a venture capitalist, you take 20% of the profit, right? So you take 20% of the profit. So you are a quasi-entrepreneur. You make your management fees, but nobody's becoming wealthy from management fees and nobody's becoming wealthy from a salary nowadays. Most people. But you get the piece of the action from the top and you get equity in their companies. And I love that within financial services, there are many areas that I find super interesting. It could be residential mortgages. It can be financial reporting. It can be point of self-financing. Mm-hmm. It can be, you so know. So many things. Well, yeah. So, so for me, I looked at it as diversification of luck. Interesting. I believed yeah. when, I started, when I started investing in technology and when I left the family office subsequently to focus 100% of my time on what I think is my true calling. I figured that I got lucky to the maximum that I can get within my capabilities, within, you know, within the opportunity that was granted to me by the universe. I maxed it. And there were two options, right? You can keep living uh, as a family office executive that gets paid well and does some transactions for his principles, etc. Or you can build your own legacy. And I really bu- wanted to build my own legacy in something that I felt good at, mm-hmm. really good at. Mm-hmm. Not, not to toot my own horn or, or drink my own Kool-Aid. I, the results, I think, are good. So around that notion of diversification of luck, I thought to myself, well, there are other people who are way luckier than me. And those are entrepreneurs that, you know, if I choose them properly and if I back them and if I help them, I can enjoy some of the benefit of their success as well. And that's... Uh, that's conceptually the way I look at uh, mm-hmm. money and the way I look at wealth. We have a short period of time here and, and it ties to something I said earlier. I felt what it is to die. And I, I, I said it candidly because I did. You know, being depressed like that back when I was very young was, you know, was painful. And uh, I think it gave me the right proportions. We live, we live in a simulation almost, right? You know. They say that when they suffer from depression that it's like blackness everywhere. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, in hindsight, I can look at it today and say it's interesting, but it was, a, it was, it shaped me properly because I understand that, think about what happens in depression, right? So you have distance between your, neuro, the, the area that's supposed to help your neurons cross uh, is not working as well, right? I forgot the name of, uh, of the receptors that are, that are involved in that, uh, in that thing that are being helped by, uh, by certain drugs like, uh, like Xanax and, but anyways, I think what I, what I found, you know, in hindsight is that we are just, just atoms, which is chemicals that are moving around like like elec- electricity pulses that yeah. are that are running around and these you're are saying that it's a simulation on some level oh i think it is a simulation i think we live in a simulation it can't be otherwise think about this weird construct where you make money and then you die so i think that you have you have to take it with the right uh, with the right proportions mm-hmm. and to find that fine balance takes time right mm-hmm. so you see some people don't find it until they're very old and then they regret it and some people try to balance it and i think uh, my wife helped me a lot with that 
it, Roni. So Roni used to be a professional surfer uh, in Israel. She was number one in Israel and uh, number five in Europe, sponsored by Roxy and Red Bull and everything. Oh, I and, want to meet her. I want to interview oh, her. Oh, you would love her. When she, so when she, came, when she came into my life, in what is a separately interesting story, we were introduced by Daniel Recanati, the Recanati family, when she was starting her company and uh, came to the States. So, but when she came into my life and as I was falling in love with her and, and really doing whatever is necessary to get her, and trust me, it was not easy. <laughs> Whatever is necessary. <laughs> But she really cares deeply about the ocean and about surfing and about, you know, her form of art. And to mm-hmm. see somebody who's so disconnected from being fake, she's incapable of lying. You know, I, I, we used to go to some functions when we started dating. And I was like, Ronnie, why did you say what you just said? <laughs> Or, you know, just be polite to that person. Or be nicer to that person. She's like, why? They're assholes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so to, to, to live with this constant dissonance of somebody who's fairly polite and knows how to adapt in certain situations to somebody, she, Ronnie's polite and super nice, but somebody who's just like so, you know, so truthful uh, made me, I think, a better person. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. What a nice thing to say. Thank you, Dovey. Wow. Thank you. This was What great. What a fantastic conversation. Thanks Thank so much. Thanks so for much. having me. Loved it. On the next Say It Forward, we'll meet celebrity divorce lawyer and family law attorney, Laura Wasser. In the male-dominated world of celebrity splits, Laura became a powerful thought leader and change agent. Dubbed the Disso Queen by TMZ, Wasser handled divorces for Anna Ferris and Chris Pratt, the Kardashians, Ryan Reynolds, Heidi Klum, Johnny Depp, and many more. Her podcast is called Divorce Sucks, and it aims to help people approach these new life chapters in a positive way. Wasser believes that the gap between her high-end clients and those who divorce online is just one of zeros in their bank account. To help ordinary folks navigate divorce, she created OverEasy, an online do-it-yourself template for marriage dissolution. With OverEasy, Wasser wants to help aid a shift away from the combative Kramer versus Kramer model of divorce and move to a healthier way to deal amicably, keeping things neutral to positive. So join us as we rewind to the beginning to hear more about the dynamic leader in conscious uncoupling, Laura Wasser, on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you.